Chris Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailer Snatter, just talking to teachers. To season two, episode nine of Nailers Natter. This week, I'm in conversation with the Institute for Effective Education's director, Mr. Jonathan Haslam, and we have a full and wide-ranging interview talking about IE's links with the Research School Network, best evidence in brief, evidence from the front line, and engaging with evidence. We also go off down a meandering conversation around the EEF's implementation guide in which I propose a garlic chicken wrap as a model for implementation. So stay tuned to find out what that looks like. So without further ado, over to my interview with Mr. Jonathan Haslam. Okay, hello Jonathan and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks very much for inviting me. No problem at all and thanks very much for being there. Um, I'm just going to get straight into the first question, if that's okay, which is uh, our you know, branded X-Factor question. So it's just a little bit about you and your very interesting uh, journey to this point. So if you can take us through a, a potted history of your career to date. Uh, so I originally, uh, I trained as a journalist and then I started doing more kind of broader uh, bits of communication. So I start off working in uh, fair trade and uh, then um, worked a little bit for myself, worked um, then for quite a while in medical and legal uh, environments. Uh, And then in about 2008, uh, saw this role advertised at uh, Institute for Effective Education at the University of York and uh, looked very interesting. It was all about explaining, um, you know, kind of translating education research into something a bit more accessible. And that's really what I'd done uh, all, all the way throughout my career was about, um, you know, getting into fairly complex subjects and trying to, trying to um, cut through a bit of the jargon of whatever field it, it was in order to explain uh, and hopefully communicate what was going on kind of clearly um, and succinctly. And uh, so, yeah, so I've been uh, at the IE for the last uh, 10 years, really kind of following um, the development of what's been going on in terms of uh, evidence-informed education. Absolutely. And if you can just tell us a little bit more, Jonathan, in terms of how that role's evolved, um, any of the work that the IE did in terms of, you know, the the help setting up of the research school network and and what kind of things you're moving on to doing now? Yeah, well, we started out, we started out as a research um, department within the university and we always had a dual function, which was to actually do the research. Uh, And that was was, um, very much in, in terms of some of the, not the earliest, but some of the, the, the beginnings of the um, running randomised controlled trials in, in education in, in the UK. 
but then also our remit remit was always that we should be communicating um, the the research out to practitioners and policymakers. Uh, and so that was the side that I was uh, really working on. So we we produced a, a, a magazine, um, better where um, you know we go, just gave researchers two pages to explain succinctly uh, the implications of of their research in an understandable way. Um, we produce uh, we still produce our fortnightly uh, e newsletter, best evidence in brief, uh, which again tries to kind of sum up the four or five bits of uh, interesting research uh, we've come across over the last last few weeks um but then also we've, we've had a number of projects where we've we've tried to to kind of work with practitioners to uh to get that information actually kind of used in the classroom and, and to get uh, to actually see what the what it might look like in practice so uh, we were involved in the Literacy Octopus um, project, which was intended to be quite, you know, using kind of light touch materials to make a difference. And we found that that, uh, you know, that didn't really uh, make a difference. And and that and a number of other experiences led us into um, the Research Schools Network, uh, which our, our funder was very uh, keen to support and which is, a, if you like, a, a jointly funded project between us and the Education Endowment Foundation. Um, so the intention at the start was that we would have uh, 10 research schools um, who would be half funded by by us and the EEF. And over the, the last few years, then that's grown because, you know, as with any kind of new in, new idea within education, once once somebody starts it, everybody wants to kind of get involved. So uh, the DFE uh, decided that they uh, would like to have a research school in each uh, opportunity area, each of the, the 12, uh, 12 or 13 opportunity areas, um, which of course uh, brought, um, brought you guys on board. Um, and then uh, we're just at the sta- stage now where the, the EFR um, planning to expand uh, the network further uh, beginning this September. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, thank you very much for that. So I'm really excited about this because you're obviously at the cutting edge of, of what is happening in terms of the research <laughs> and in terms of getting it into schools and, and, and being usable for teachers. So I say this every week, but the reason for the podcast was to actually give teachers strategies that they can use with with their own pupils in their own classroom, but also exactly what you were talking about there, and and best evidence in brief is a great example of that, making it accessible for teachers. So I'm just going to ask you what the one piece of of research that you're going to talk to us about is, and kind of your involvement in it, or how you came across that. Yeah, so I thought it would be uh, interesting to, uh, to, I suppose, this evening, uh, or, or our discussion is going to be a bit bit kind of meta, because we're talking about um, that kind of use of, uh, we're talking about overall, where we get, where are we at with the use of uh, research by schools in education. Um, so I want to talk about, um, there was a recent, um, it was kind of a, a what did they describe it as a, a research briefing uh, I think of uh, teachers engagement with research what do we know uh, and it's a it's a survey essentially by carried out by the NFER on behalf of the EF um, and it was a bit of a replication of a, of a 
a survey that they did, I think, three uh, years ago. And what's interesting about that is that we tend to get the impression uh, sometimes that, that, that people are now very familiar uh, with what's going on. So, for example, surveys will, will say that um, something like 50 to 60 percent of teachers across the board are, are familiar with the Sutton Trust EEF toolkit. But those questions are often kind of framed along the lines of, you know, if you ask somebody, uh, do you do you give your kids healthy food? And, uh, you know, obviously all people say, yes, yes, obviously I do. Uh, whereas this, the, the latest study, this latest research from the NFR kind of flips it from you know, looks at it from the other way around and says, well, when you when you did your um, recent uh, in, recent sort of changes within school, what were the sources that you you went to to um, you know to to come across those ideas that you used? And when you flip the question around that way, what you find is that that research actually comes a long way down the list. So um, something like 60% of people will say, well, um, these they were from ideas generated by me or my school. 54% would say information gathered through training or CPD. Um, and then comes kind of ideas from other schools, um, research that's been, that uh, teachers have carried out themselves or with other teachers. And it's something like one, two, it's about tenth in the list is sources based on the work of research organizations and only only kind of 13 percent of schools uh, or teachers will will say that that's the that's the source of their ideas so i think um uh, to me that's always it's interesting for a couple of reasons uh and the first is just to to flag up how far we've we've kind of still got to go uh in terms of actually getting the materials um or the you know the ideas from research used in practice or and influencing practice and then also i guess the other sort of interesting thing is that it, it indicates that however well we're doing in terms of evidence-informed practice you know we're all human and we actually rely most on the ideas and the thoughts that we get from from colleagues, from our own experience, and, and so on and so forth. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that at all, but it's, it's just thinking of ways in which evidence uh, or research evidence can be incorporated into um, into those those processes and those ways of working. Mm. I mean, it's so interesting what you're talking about there in terms of, you know, you started at the beginning saying about how sort of research school networks and things are going to opportunity areas, and then by the nature of those kind of positions that, that we've got now and, you know, the, the wider kind of social media, that sort of thing, you end up thinking that every single teacher in every single classroom is very, very familiar with all the latest evidence and, and research and they're using it on a day-to-day -day basis. And it, it, you only need to step a little bit further outside of maybe where you're working or, you know, go a little bit wider in terms of even social media to find that actually... There's a lot of good work going on, and there's a lot of people who are, you know, extremely evidence-based. But it's not maybe um, as widespread as as your kind of experience would would, would suggest. Well, that's right, and and you know, I mean, that was one reason, one of the reasons why uh, we were so keen to work with the research schools was 
because uh, schools listen to other schools mm. um, and you know we can we can kind of pump out our stuff but actually um, I think what what teachers and schools want to hear from are they want to hear from people like yourselves who've who've actually uh, looked at the research um, you know distilled the active ingredients or whatever you like to call it um, trialed it in their classroom evaluated it in the classroom and, and what the experience of that is so you know practically uh, how does this work and what does it look like and what kind of thing, you know there are, there are a number of um, challenges there because I've I've just kind of I've kind of laid out the steps uh, which in theory uh, somebody who wants to be evidence informed would be which is to you know you identify what what the issue is that you're looking at and then you look for research that's appropriate and you you know you interpret you look at that research you understand that research you draw out the active ingredients you then incorporate those into your own practice you then evaluate how that goes in the classroom and actually that's you know that was that was 10 seconds but that was that's a really difficult thing to know that you're you're kind of doing authentically all the way through that. Well, there are loads of challenges to, to all of those steps, I think. Uh, and that's something that really we're only just, well, I say we, but uh, I suppose I'm only just sort of starting to learn about. And, and these are the sort of things that we're reflecting on within the research schools network. Mm. Mm. Just in terms of um, those active ingredients, this is just a personal reflection, but sometimes when we're leading some training around implementation, and I think the implementation guide is probably one of the, the best publications that, that schools can use because it seems to underpin every other guidance report or piece of evidence, you know, how it's implemented. Yeah. Really, it kind of makes or breaks the particular thing that, it, that, that you're looking at. But I always find active ingredients to be quite difficult to explain. Now, yes. for, for people that have been on the courses, it might be down to the honey bun explanation um, that, we're, that we're given. I don't know if you've seen that one, Jonathan. Have you, are you familiar with that? Uh, I'm only, uh, what's the honey bun uh, explanation then? Because I'm familiar with uh, Gus Honeybun, who used to uh, present the children's birthdays on television in the West Country. So th this may be a different research. Well, well, it's not actually a it's actually a physical cake. So when we talk about training for implementation, um, to to make it grounded in in people's experience, there's a slide. I mean, I won't necessarily say where the slides come from, but there's a slide of this particular cake, um, and we we ask people in the course what makes this particular bun a honey bun and we describe those as the active ingredients that makes the, uh, the the cake what it is and without any of those ingredients it wouldn't be the cake that it is but as i've just eloquently badly explained there <laughs> that shows why it doesn't transfer so i suppose i'm meandering around to a question you know how do you explain what active ingredients are in terms of you know a particular piece of research and you know, how do you go about ensuring that, that, that they're faithfully adopted? Uh, well, you'd be delighted to know I don't have the answer to that. Uh, and actually, uh, that's one thing that I'm, uh, I suppose that I'm slightly uncertain about. We, we talk so often about active ingredients, and yet, uh, in a way, rather as you illustrated, there isn't a, there isn't a really good example that I'm aware of where you can say this 
you know, these are the active ingredients of this particular approach. Uh, you may be, uh, you know, uh, I suppose retrieval practice, we could probably have a go at uh, saying what is and what isn't retrieval practice, but what are the essential elements of that? Uh, peer tutoring always used to be quite a good one. There's always a fairly kind of clear definition of if you were doing, particularly peer reading, uh, actually, if you were if you were doing that within a, a setting that that was that was quite kind of well defined about uh, as to what that was and what that wasn't. But that's I think that's a really really interesting question because to distill the active ingredients from. Uh, some research and then to you know to say with confidence that this is what those those active ingredients are actually i think that's something we haven't really um got into uh enough um i don't know whether can you i mean what would you suggest as a as a good example of active ingredients other than the cake like an actual example well, I mean, I suppose before we get into that, it's 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 the importance of them. So what what we're finding now is that, and we've touched on the fact that maybe evidence and research based practice isn't as widespread as the echo chambers that maybe I exist in would suggest that it is. So that's one aspect of it. But also, there's the other angle that you can get a good idea from research and evidence. But then I think it was Dylan William that talked about these lethal mutations where you know you have a surface kind of understanding of a particular piece of research and then you take the bits of it that you like and you don't take the bits of it that are making it what it is and then you implement yeah. it into a school and it, and it's it's completely different to what yeah. you expected it to be so it's really carefully we try to do active ingredients and actually we've come up with another example Jonathan but I don't know if you'll like it so this this shows the sort of <laughs> The the, uh, the gulf in um, social standing between people who designed the Honeybun example and people like me who are doing this example. So uh, bear with me on this one. So on a, on a Friday night after football practice, uh, me, and, me and the kids like to go for McDonald's. So when we go to McDonald's, I, I allow them to do the self-service via, um, you know, the, the, the terminals that you can have in those. I'm sure yeah, you don't yeah. die in there very often, yeah. Jonathan, but you know what I mean. And, no, no, and, <laughs> and child one it likes to have a garlic mayo chicken wrap which which all sounds fine however he doesn't like garlic mayo he doesn't like lettuce and he doesn't particularly like tomato and you know he has been known to not have the wrap so <laughs> he, he ticks all of the boxes to remove all of those things. And I've often said to him, I said, well, what exactly about the garlic mayo chicken wrap is it that you actually want? Well, I like the chicken. Well, why don't you just order, for example, you know, I'm doing a good marketing thing for, for McDonald's here. Why don't you just order some chicken selects? Because that's the, exactly what that is. Well, yeah, but you don't get the meal with that, so there's no point. And I just thought, you know, that, that's <laughs> perhaps, dare I say, a more everyday example yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of of active ingredients. So actually, you're buying something that actually you're not getting and it <laughs> i don't know if this will catch on this this might this might go from here but it's it's that idea of a, this is the intervention but actually i've taken out everything that made it the intervention really and you know so that that's how we understood it active ingredients but it, as you can hear it's a, it's a working model at the moment yeah i think that's right i think that's right and yeah it's been it's 
ensuring, isn't it, that that it wasn't the the garlic mayo or the tomatoes that that were actually the important things that were, you know, that were were actually having the impact, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that, that actually the 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 chicken is is just the um, I was gonna, I was going to say the chicken is just the bun, but then that doesn't work either. Um, but yeah, yeah, exactly, and and. Um, I suppose the other thing is then uh, that you also think well, uh, so so you get your um, you get your just your chicken in a wrap, and you put on uh, you, you know you, you you add back onto that maybe some some tomato ketchup, uh, and you know possibly some gherkins and a bit of salad. Who knows? And so the to build it back up in all in order to be a, a, a fully fledged thing. Uh, fully fledged meal. Uh, in this case, God, we're stretching this analogy. Um, <laughs> but so, what you end up with is something that doesn't look like a, a garlic chicken wrap at all. It looks like something completely different. But actually, it's the same. And you can you can see how that you know that might happen to uh, research being applied in in schools that it may look quite different in different settings and different environments, but there's still that active ingredient within it that's that's the thing that we we believe from research um should have an impact mm. no that's actually interesting there yeah so that you can take you know elements of the active ingredients without taking all of them that's quite an interesting angle there that you know it's still making the essence of it and, and, and making that work from yeah some of the active ingredients it, we do find that a difficult part of sort of the implementation guidance where you know, it, people are getting better at identifying what the issues are, and then and then projecting forward to say why it might not work and pre mortems and that kind of thing. But the actual active ingredients, we have struggled a little bit, and we, we've toyed with ideas around, you know, using school specific language like non negotiables. But that that can be quite divisive in terms of a phrase to be used, because actually they're not yeah. they're not quite non negotiables, are they? No, and and non non negotiables in some circumstances has become a bit of a pejorative phrase, mm. hasn't it? Mm. Um, it? It can it you know it ties in with particular pro, uh, you know performance management or whatever type approaches. So um, oh, and a particular way of doing things. So yeah, um, I mean, I think active ingredients is fine. We just need to. Uh, you know, it's a nice catchy phrase, but I think we just need need to uh, explain clearly, uh, yeah, what it means and uh, and uh, yeah, and what what sort of things we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm just conscious that I'm going down a rabbit hole of um, you know my culinary preferences, which is probably not <laughs> not the purpose of this podcast. So if we can just pull it back a little bit to this, we like to keep it quite short and snappy. That the idea was that this will be something that listeners can tune into on sort of a commute or a dog walk sure. or something short like that. So if we can move into you know how has that piece of research been shared is it something that's gone through best evidence in brief is it being used by schools how are you going about sharing that um well yeah we've shared it quite widely actually because um uh, yeah it was in best evidence in brief uh we um uh we um I don't know if you know UK Edres chat, which takes place on a Thursday evening on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, eight thirty, um, and uh, Karen Weisbeza 
is the is the kind of organizer behind that and we encouraged um you know uh, julie nelson who who produced the research kindly took part in a uh, one of those last last per week i mean i think i think it's about um it's just kind of about knowing knowing where we are um in terms of the movement if you want to call it that um and uh, and as you said you know recognizing that uh we are in a bit of a bubble um you know whether that's uh, amongst the research schools or people that we bump into or or on twitter um and actually you know you probably i'm sure you do the thing, same thing in events where you say okay how many people are on twitter and it's it's really you know it's generally not that many yeah um you know when you uh, um I, I tend to find if i tweet from events there's normally me and a couple of people who I already knew who were tweeting and, <laughs> and, and that's kind of it. So, uh, you know, so, so we shouldn't, you know, there's a danger in, um, kind of us getting, uh, maybe too far, uh, forward in terms of our thinking of how things are progressing and actually still there's a lot of people for whom, for whom this is all, uh, new stuff. And, you know, we have to, uh, you know, as with any, uh, learning about any, anything, you know, if you remember what, a, what kind of a steep learning curve it is to get your head around, uh, just some of the basic principles of, um, what we're looking for in, in research and what we're looking for from research, you know, we never underestimate how, uh, you know, where people are in that, uh, journey in their own journey, as it were. Mm. No, definitely. So in terms of the last section, Jonathan, what we talk about now is kind of what kind of things you're going to be working on next, where listeners can, can hear you speak. Because I know that you go to quite a lot of conferences, you're involved in, you know, um, sort of chairing some debates around research and, and, and evidence-based practice. So if you could just tell listeners, you know, what kind of things you're involved in next, where they can see you speaking or, or that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, well, I would, first things is to say is, uh, please sign up for our newsletter, uh, Best Evidence in Brief. Um, it's just, uh, uk. If you go there, you can sign up, um, see what it's like. It's a quick skim every two reads, uh, every two reads, every two weeks. Um, we've got about five, between five and 6,000 subscribers now in the UK yeah. and, um, probably into the tens or uh, probably well we've got a version in China now so we can I'm sure we can claim to be into the hundreds of thousands um, and uh, and you know we that's where you can find out really um, firstly obviously the latest uh, uh, research that's come out and then also uh, what we're up to um, in terms of what our next um, what what we're doing next um, I suppose our focus for the next year is, is really to talk about what we've learned so far from uh, the, the the research schools project. So we're we're reflecting on that in terms of um, what does it mean to be uh, a research sensitive school, a school that incorporates, uh, if you like, its own professional experience and. Um, innovation and evaluation and research into improving uh, itself what does that what does that look like how does that happen um what are our ideas about that and then also um we'll be uh, we're, we're always uh, 
publishing. Uh, we've got another one coming out this week. Um, we supported now getting on for 30 innovation evaluation projects, which are just small scale research projects run by teachers and schools uh, and looking at uh, questions that are of practical interest um, to the schools themselves. So we really haven't, uh, we've not told anybody uh, what to look at. These are all ideas that have come from schools and we've learned a huge amount about what is what is feasible for schools to do in terms of evaluating their own practice. So, so the next kind of year is about getting the results of those out, sharing those and sharing our experience of, of what that's been. So um, in terms, so we're looking for a book deal. I mean, everybody's looking for a book deal, aren't they? Or actually, that's not true. Most people have already published books. Um, so hopefully I, I was going to say something then, but I thought I probably better don't cut in at this point because, you know, if Simon Cox is listening to this, yes, we have got one. But as to as to how much work has actually taken place in writing that, I, I think we've got as far as the title so far. We've been we've been slightly busy with various other things you see this year. So you know, it, it... I'm sure there were there were urban myths that, um, judging by the number of uh, the rate at which uh, Elvis impersonators were growing, <laughs> that I think by about the year 2050 everybody was going to be an Elvis impersonator, and I think the same is true for teachers writing books. I think by about 2050 there will be more books written by teachers than teachers. Um, so, but uh, uh, but in all seriousness, we're 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 ho- um, yeah, we want to um, we want to share uh, what we've learned from this experience, uh, so that others can hopefully uh, build on it and learn from it. Uh, and so we'll be pushing that information out over the next uh, year, eighteen months or so. So that's really really what we're hoping to do. No, brilliant. That's definitely one that, that listeners will be interested in. In terms of you, Jonathan, because obviously you speak at quite a few of the research ed conferences and, and various other conferences, where can we where can we see you next? Uh, I'm being quite quiet at the moment. Uh, my colleague, Alicia Shaw, she's doing the uh, Hallam Festival of Education, uh, which I think is this weekend. She's doing... Um, she'll be at the Wellington Festival of Education. She is also presenting at uh, the London TSA conference at the beginning of July. I'm not doing anything now until the autumn term, uh, and I think I'm doing... I can't remember what I'm doing exactly. Uh, <laughs> so I, I know I'm sorry. I'm dreadful at self-promotion. Um, but if you uh, if you see, uh, and also actually, one thing I will mention is January 2020, uh, we'll be putting on a conference uh, with schools who've been doing the innovation evaluation um, projects, and we'll be sharing both the results of those and uh, and also you know the meta what have we learned about doing evaluation so uh, that that is one to look out for i think we had a really successful uh, conference last year uh, with the few that had reported then uh, but this this time we'll have uh, perhaps 20, between 20 and 25 projects to to hear about so there should be something in it for everybody great stuff and that's a perfect point to say thank you jonathan for your time this evening really much thank appreciate you very it very much and um, it really has. Uh, apologies for my uh, analogies. I don't think they'll be making their way to uh, 
any research school courses very soon, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll give it a go. So thanks again, Jonathan. Thanks for your time, and uh, hope I see you fairly soon. Cheers. I'll see you. Uh, yeah, I think we'll see each other soon. I'm sure. Okay. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Hello, everyone. You are listening to my dad on the podcast called Nailers Natter. Follow him on Twitter at PNA1977. Really enjoyed the interview with Jonathan there, and hopefully I'll be going to courses up and down the country where people will be referring to implementation via the medium of McDonald's meals. Uh, in the shameless plug section coming up, we have podcasts in the next few weeks. So I've literally just finished recording a conversation with Professor Michael Young. So I'm incredibly excited to bring that to you in the next few weeks. I'm also recording a podcast with Catherine Morgan tomorrow. We'll be talking about all things CPD. And I have Mark McCourt talking about his new book, Mastery, in the next few weeks. In terms of shameless plugs and where you can see me next, I will be at the Metacognition Conference, Developing Metacognition in a Knowledge-Rich Curriculum at the Novotel, London West, on this Friday, the 28th of June. So if you're there, please come and say hello uh, and give us a chat about the podcast. So once again, thank you for listening to Nailers Natter and see you next time. Just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence based practice with continuing professional development at PNA 1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter. Just talking to teachers. 